I got to make sure I say profound things to you so you can put something <laughs> good in the intro part of the podcast. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by one of the province's premier television and online journalists, hailing from our nation's capital, which he continues to insist is the best city in the world. He has worked for City TV in Edmonton and CBC BC as their provincial affairs reporter. Before that, he actually covered the historic 2008 U.S. presidential primary for an NPR radio station in Little Rock, Arkansas, traveling with Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee on his campaign bus. He is the co-author, alongside Vancouver Sun legislative columnist Rob Shaw, of the book A Matter of Confidence, about 2017's confidence vote in the B.C. legislature and the end of the B.C. liberal dynasty. He saved some people during the 2011 Stanley Cup riots. This is true. A die-hard hip-hop head, allegedly with an overwhelming collection of sports figurines and Funkos that his wife calls his dollies. He is the president of the BC Legislative Press Gallery, the online journalist for Global BC. I interview the politicians that I do in pursuit of his approval. He is Richard <laughs> Zussman. Richard, how are you, man? Oh, Mo, I'm awesome, buddy. And, and I... Uh, listen often to the podcast, as you know about, because I am very interested to see what you get out of politicians. I also was going to switch up some things on my Wikipedia page to see if I could uh, get some things past you and see if they showed up in the intro. But I didn't do it, and I really appreciate the very kind welcome, and I am really thrilled uh, to be here with you. Well, that means a lot to me. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. It's always reliable, it's knowledgeable, and the analysis is on point. It's an honor that you give me the time of day, so thank you for being here. Yeah, and thank you for doing what you do. You know, you and I have talked about this before, but I think it's really, really important uh, that, you know, British Columbians like yourself take an interest in, you know, the way the decisions are made in this province and you hold politicians to account. And, you know, I think that's really, really important. Not all of us sort of have platforms like you and I do, mm -hmm. but I think it's really important the work you do. And, and I really appreciate it as well. Well, thank you. That's kind for you to say. I'm just having fun. I, this is, you know, I'm a political junkie. This this stuff really interests me. Even if we're talking about culture, that stuff interests me. So I'm having a lot of fun here. But Richard, I got to ask you, man, how are you so damn likable? Because I kicked some tires around and everyone in BC media seems to love and respect you. I mean, I'm not even in the scene and I already have people that don't like me. How'd you pull that off? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it's everyone, Mo. I think I try to give people a fair shake and I try to give them time. And I think one of the things I hope people appreciate about me is I care immensely about what I do. And just what you mentioned is, you know, you're having fun and you're doing it for fun. You know, I'm having fun too. And, and I, I love doing this so much. And I love, you know, covering politics and understanding politics. But most importantly, mm -hmm. I love getting British Columbians answers. You know, mm -hmm. we're all living through, you know, just look at the current time, this unprecedented time of the pandemic, and people have questions. And I pride myself on trying to provide those uh, answers to people. And, and, you know, within media circles, you know, I've tried to be, you know, generous with my time. And, and I really 
enjoy working with colleagues. And yes, it's a competitive environment. I work <laughs> for Global News. I, I want to get big stories. I, I work to compete against uh, other journalists in this province. But I think together, especially with how journalism in many regards is sort of under attack and, and mm. the industry is in trouble, it's really important for all of us to work together to strengthen the industry, to remind people how important the work we do is and how it's important to maintain sort of support and funding for the product so that we can continue mm. to have journalists that are working hard to get answers in this province. I love that. And I love that you started the show that way. For me, on my journey in this podcasting realm, I've really grown an appreciation for local news. It was something that I always consumed. It was in the background, but I never thought about how important it was to my community, to my life, and to my neighbors. So I appreciate that. I have a lot to learn from you, and I want to start with this. I want to talk to you about something that happened in February, which I know feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> the Wet'suwet'en protests at the BC legislature, you scaled the wall of the BC legislature stairs outside just to get inside. Allegedly, you had a bag full of bagels, a great gif moment for local politics and media <laughs> here. But it was a very tense and chaotic moment as yeah. well, because the footage I saw before, it was showing protesters screaming at you while you're being jostled around, just trying to get inside the building to do your job. How were the interactions with protesters? Because later you tweeted the quote is, I'll do better. And I sympathize with you because if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't know what to do. I probably would have gone home. So tell me about that experience and what you would have done differently. Yeah, I think most importantly, I think it was about, you know, respect and, and, uh, I should have, in many cases, you know, taken my time to figure out a better way to get into the building. And yes, protesters mm. were demonstrating and blocking the doorways, but in no way did I ever want uh, the message to be sent that I was trying to circumvent the protests that were happening or in any way to make it look like uh, I was you know, trying to mock or insult what was happening there. Protest is an mm -hmm. integral part of our society. And the message that day was loud. Uh, it was diverse in many ways in terms of different organizations and different communities being represented. Uh, indigenous youth who were leading the charge was really, really uh, essential. And I think, you know, I'm learning every day too. And that was mm -hmm. a really unique situation where on our own workplace, the work that we were trying to do and, and, you know, I know a lot of people have made a lot of things of me carrying those bagels into the building. And, and that was to do with the fact I had a meeting, our press gallery annual general meeting to bring the bagels to. And, and uh, you know, again, if I were to do it again, uh, I would have done things differently. But I think that the main thing to learn from that is, you know, every day you learn things on the job, things are intense, things happen quickly. You know, we were on BC One that day as well uh, mm -hmm. with my colleague Paul Hasem, just walking around the building, showing sort of the growing protests and, mm. and the, uh, in many cases, protesters blocking politicians as well from entering mm. the building. There was a lot of intense moments that day. And most of it was very respectful on all sides. The protesters were respectful and I feel the media was respectful as well. And, and part of my job is I needed to balance going inside and outside because of live hits. So, you know, yeah. we'll see if we ever see a scene like that again. And I promise, you know, and I promise the listeners that I will do things differently if they happen again in terms of, you know, 
taking my time, only going in when it's possible. You know, the mm-hmm. understanding that day was that media was going to be able to move in and out of the building to do our job. And a few times when I tried to get in, that just wasn't happening. So I think good communication will happen next time if it happens again. And Oh, it sure does feel like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that insight and I appreciate that introspection. I think it's cool that you gave it a lot of thought. It would be very normal for a lot of people to go through something like that and, you know, be angry about it or bitter about it or not want to talk about it. So I, so I appreciate that. The reason why I want to talk to you, though, is about what's happening in provincial politics right now. Straight up, is BC going to see an early election this fall? Because I heard. <laughs> that the premier is going to talk to the lieutenant governor on September 15th to get her approval to do it. Yeah, so I've heard things like that as well. And there is a big, big push internally from the NDP to have an election in the fall. You just look at the polling numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. If you trust what you're seeing there, John Horgan would walk away with a massive majority government in a situation mm-hmm. where he could win almost every seat in Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But is that a reality? And what sort of whiplash would there be from the electorate for calling an election in the midst of a pandemic? So these are <laughs> things that are being weighed right now. I have said all along, I believe that this uh, government would go right to term, which is now the fall of 2021. I'm not so sure about that anymore. But I think the situation that's more likely than the fall is in the spring, where you'll have a budget that will come forward in February. Uh, The budget will be armed with, you know, lots of big promises, lots of spending, a big deficit, and that will make up the NDP's platform. Hmm. And then based on that, the premier will go to the lieutenant governor and say, we need an election because I need a mandate from British Columbians in order to spend this money in order to move forward with this plan. And I think that's more likely than the fall. The fall would be something similar because we know uh, in a few weeks time that uh, Premier Horgan and and Minister Carol James will be outlining how to spend the money for uh, financial and economic recovery in the province. And that could also be seen as something that needs a mandate. It's $2.5 billion of taxpayer money. Right. And so Horgan could say, if that plan's popular, I need a mandate for that. But I, again, I'm not trying to be wishy-washy. We just don't know. We know things <laughs> like when you were chatting with Andrew Weaver on the podcast, he mentioned Elections BC has rented space. Mm-hmm. Don't use that as a clue. Elections BC is always <laughs> renting space. We're in a minority government. Elections could happen anytime. They're going to need space, especially now more than ever, because they rely so heavily on schools, right? And it would be right. really hard right now to have a polling station in a school. And so there are a lot of challenges there. I think we're hearing a lot of the same things, you and I and and many others, about a push from the NDP for the fall. But Mm -hmm. I still, if I was betting, would say the spring is more likely. I just think there's too many risks associated with the pandemic. But Richard, even in the spring, we still might be dealing with the yeah. pandemic, right? I agree. and But but then we will have seen a U.S. election, mm. which is really, really crucial. One of the biggest elections in the world will have already happened and we'll get a sense of what the feedback is like in terms of a pandemic election. We will have seen a New Brunswick election. We will have seen a Saskatchewan mm-hmm. election. So all of that can give us some clues on how to do things more effectively. Does that mean more advanced polling? Does that mean more voting by mail? And then that gives us a better sense and elections BC a better sense on how to do things. I think we'll definitely learn from, or we have the opportunity to learn from the New Brunswick and Saskatchewan elections, 
I do fear that that U.S. election is going to be a shit show, which maybe not might not be the model of of how to do things. What baffles me, though, is let's say we're going in the fall or even in the spring. What does an election look like in terms of campaigning? Because you probably won't get door-to-door canvassing. You're not going to get big events, even voting. Like, what does this all look like during a pandemic? And it's one of the things, well, I think a lot about, because I'm so super curious about that. And, and, you know, even if a politician were to knock on your door and back up six feet, I'm not sure a lot of British Columbians would feel comfortable answering. And even mm-hmm. if they're wearing a mask or they're, I've spoken to some politicians about saying that they would wear gloves and they would mm-hmm. wear a mask and they would go door to door that way. It's very different than what we're used to here. Just simple things like many political parties rely on driving voters to the polls, you know, perfect mm-hmm. strangers that they help get out and vote. Right. That's that's now not possible in a pandemic. Uh, you know, what does it look like in terms of the media covering? That's something I worry a lot about, Mo, because, yeah. you know, right now, uh, all the major news organizations in the province would send a reporter on a campaign bus with the leaders, and they would go from city to city, community to community, and observe the sort of messaging we're seeing from politicians, being mm-hmm. able to ask questions every day. I don't think in a pandemic, especially this fall, that would be possible. So how can we make sure as journalists that we're holding politicians account that we are getting the information that we need to pass on to the voters? And and I don't have any answers to that. And that's one of the things that I'm grappling with. And as the uh, press gallery president, as you mentioned, is something I'm going to keep working on so that we're prepared that if there is an election soon, that we can ensure that people get the information they want. And those mm-hmm. big rallies you mentioned, you know, in many cases here in British Columbia, politicians just wouldn't take the risk on those big events. And so yeah. I know those big events are really just built for television. They aren't a, a really effective way to, to you know, look, sort of let voters know what you stand for, but they are an important symbol of the way that our democracy works. And so mm-hmm. we'll have to, like everything in our lives, we'll have to rethink what it looks like and try to do it in a way. Dr. Bonnie Henry believes that we can do an election safely. Uh, so I think that part's okay. But yes, all those fundamentals you mentioned, how we campaign, how we cover campaigns, that would all have to change. It almost makes you wonder, like, what if there's a situation where, let's say you're on a campaign bus and someone on that campaign bus, maybe even one of the candidates, gets sick, gets COVID? Then right. is everyone in quarantine for, for the rest of the election? Yeah. You know, there's so many of these scenarios where it just feels like we're going to have to rethink how this election looks like. And it's it almost seems to favor the incumbents. Like if you have name brand in your community, voters might lean towards you because the other candidates just don't have that same opportunity to get out there face to face with people in the community. I think that's a good point. And I think also uh, it could uh, provide an advantage to the overall party. Like, you know, in Mm. some cases, people's um, impressions change when they meet a politician. They they meet them at an event or in the doorway and they say, do you know what? I've never voted for you before, but I really like you and I've never mm. voted for your party. And so I'm going to give you the vote. That stuff won't happen. I think it's going to be based on bigger ideas. And, and the other really important thing is like COVID will dominate everything here. And, and as I think yeah. about elections and I try to explain them to people, it's really about 
you know, your personal experience, right? You open up yeah. your ICBC bill and has it gone up? And is that because of the current government or has it gone down? Or, or you look at, uh, you know, your school or you look at your housing price and you look at the things, you look at traffic. That's another mm-hmm. big one, right? You know, are you stuck in a big commute? Are you stuck on an overcrowded SkyTrain? Where you live, is it accessible by transit? Like these are the sort of things people think about when they vote. And now all of that is going to shift to, how has COVID-19 impacted my life and can politicians help me? And if they can or can't, that may be how I decide where I'm going to vote. And obviously it's such a unique situation that we're in, at least our generation is in. Yeah. Throughout your career, you've covered a wide variety of elections. And that was actually going to be my next question is, are campaigns about winning hearts in terms of who's likable, who do I want to have a beer with, or is it about winning minds? Whose policies are best for me? And do campaigns really matter? Like if we voted today versus voting two months from now, let's say everything was normal, yeah. does it make a difference barring some sort of new scandal or you know right. uh, outlier? And, and I think campaigns matter immensely. And mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned outliers. Like during the last provincial election. Christy Clark had this interaction with a woman named Linda Higgins Ah, at a grocery store in North Vancouver. And I covered that extensively and it's in our book. And I was the first person to speak to Linda and, in the grand scheme and of things. And she's not a plant, right? Just she, so is not, she is not a plant. Okay. And in the grand scheme of things, this was a very minor interaction. Christy Clark mm-hmm. brushed her off. They spoke for eight seconds. Everyone moved on, mm-hmm. except for the liberals who were convinced that, as you mentioned, she was a plant. And this led <laughs> to conversations on social media. And this led to Christy Clark having to take six days worth of questions during the back (laughs) half of an election campaign about how she interacts with people. And that Hmm. was one of the things that people criticized Christy Clark about, that she was distant. She didn't care Mm -hmm. about others. She cared only about herself. And that perception was magnified by one event in a campaign. And so, Mm. you know, did that event impact the outcome of the election? I don't think so, but it contributed to the way people saw Christy Clark and saw the election. So I think campaigns matter. I think what you focus on in campaigns matter, and especially for candidates like John Horgan in 2017 and Andrew Wilkinson this time, it will be an introduction for people, right? People yeah. aren't particularly familiar in this province with our opposition leaders. They, mm-hmm. they aren't on TV as much. They aren't on the radio. You don't read about them in the newspaper. You don't see them online. They are in many senses invisible in some regards until there is an election. And so that's why elections are so crucial. We have so much going on in our lives, you know, just in regular times and COVID times, that focusing on politics as intently as you and I do mm-hmm. is really hard for people to do. And so they can dedicate that four-week period during the campaign to focus in and understand the issues. So I think campaigns matter. I think they're changing a lot with the use of social media. You know, parties can much better speak to their base and potential voters than they could before. And and that Mm -hmm. is another thing 
that sort of concerns me a bit about the state of journalism is parties now. You saw in the last election, the BC Liberals hired a guy named John Lehman, an incredible still photographer, one of the best in the country, worked for the Globe and Mail for a long time. And John was hired to take pictures of Christy Clark. And hmm. they would send out those pictures. And the saying <laughs> is true, a picture is worth a thousand words. And yeah. it created this impression for people around her. Mm. And parties are shifting more towards that, producing their own videos, producing pictures and communicating their message without a media filter directly to the voter. So it sounds like you're saying, I mean, obviously it's important to win hearts and minds, yeah. but it sounds like you're saying that hearts component is, is much more important. And some of these uh, emotional connections you make can really sway and influence a campaign and potentially how people vote. I think so. And I think the minds part is tough because, you know, it's hard for anyone to know sort of what is best, right? Yeah. Like it's it's in your heart, the reaction that this feels okay. But like when someone looks at car insurance policy, how are you or I supposed to know if, you know, a no-fault model is better than a private model? <laughs> and, you know, we hear all the arguments on both sides and we yeah. make our assessments based on our rates and what it will cost the system and risk and all of this stuff. But like, we're not policy experts in that. And so mm -hmm. we have a feeling of what we think, you know, so I think apply that to all of the issues and it becomes really complicated to know as an individual, which policy is the smartest, but yeah. to know how that makes you feel, that's much, much easier for a lot of people. I want to ask you a question that I asked Jazz Joe Hall and Christy Clark. They both made the case for Andrew Wilkinson. Is Andrew Wilkinson winning hearts? Is he the right guy to lead this big tent coalition and beat the NDP? I think at this point, he's the guy that's going to try. And, you know, he was elected, as Christy Clark told you in the podcast, the members picked him and he's going to get a chance to prove it in an election. I've known Andrew Wilkinson uh, for a while now, since he was a minister and, and since he was first elected to provincial politics. Uh, he is a very smart and in many regards, uh, caring man. And I think that that is the part of Andrew Wilkinson that not a lot of people know about. And the mm -hmm. BC Liberals need to convince the public of that. Mm -hmm. You know, one small story about Andrew Wilkinson is when our uh, son was born uh, almost five years ago now, uh, the Liberals were in government and someone from the Liberal caucus asked me who they would like um, who I would like for them to introduce my son in the legislature to announce that reporter Richard Zussman has had a baby. <laughs> and I said, to him, well, I don't care. Like, you know, them LA's aren't my friends. I have no favorites. <laughs> or I said, I don't care. And apparently in the caucus room, Andrew Wilkinson put up his hand and said, I have a lot of respect for Richard and I admire his work. And I would like to be the one that introduces his son. Oh, and wow. sure, you, cool. you can try to gain some political points by, you know, introducing the son of a journalist, sure. But I do believe that, that he actually cares about, you know, our families and our lives. And, and that's the image that the liberals need to pass on. I yeah. also think it's really important to help to switch up that team. You know, there's so many people that have been in the BC Liberal Caucus for a long time. Yeah. And in order to convince voters that they are different than the liberals of Gordon Campbell, the liberals of Christy Clark, 
they need to, those people need to change. So we know Rich Coleman isn't running again. We know Linda mm-hmm. Reed isn't running again, but there are more politicians that have been there a long time, Mike DeYoung and Shirley Bond and others who they could be, and I think probably are the best MLAs to have ever uh, represented their communities. Those mm-hmm. two, especially Mike DeYoung and Shirley Bond are incredible politicians and community representatives, but that doesn't mean they are the people who should be leading this party going forward. Yeah. That there needs to be fresh blood to help send a message to the public that things are changing. I mean, hey, I genuinely enjoyed chatting with Andrew Wilkinson the two times that he was on the podcast. Like you said, I think he's very smart, very articulate. He can speak on any file that you throw at him. I almost wonder if because the BC Liberals' strategy in opposition has just been to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. I wonder if they've kind of lost the ability to communicate a clear vision to British Columbians and communicate a clear sense of who they are through their leader, Andrew Wilkinson, as a result. Because a lot of what you see is just them, and obviously that's their role as opposition to criticize everything, but you get the feeling that they're just throwing everything at the wall and a lot of that stuff ends up boomeranging back. Yeah. And I think, you know, the liberals will, as the center-right party, focus on the economy. And that's going to be especially important now coming out of the pandemic. And they will try to convince voters that they are the party that is best able to manage the economy. It's a pretty Mm -hmm. traditional message. But beyond that, it's hard, like you said, to understand what they are going to focus on what the mm-hmm. platform will be all about and what do they care about in their bones like we knew that about john horgan he cared about addressing affordability he cared immensely about child care and providing child care mm-hmm. he cared about transit and moving people around and those were things that were easy to sell on the campaign trail because especially in metro vancouver and here on southern vancouver island people were feeling those pressures and right. so andrew wilkinson will need to find those things, especially when it comes to COVID-19, that he can show he can do better. And, you know, schools are one of those things. The the NDP has struggled with the school restart plan. And I think, you know, governments across the world are struggling with school (laughs) restart plans. But there's no right answer. (laughs) Exactly. And and that's what the public will say is, how can you do it better when seemingly everyone's struggling with it? So I think the economy will obviously be a central focus of the liberals. Beyond that, It's one of those, we sort of have to wait and see what they come up with. When we talk about brand perception for the liberals, or even how Andrew Wilkinson is perceived in the public, was it ultimately the right political move for Wilkinson to provide MLA Laurie Thronis with cover and keep him in caucus? Because whether it's Spencer, Chandra, Herbert, or Selena Robinson, there are people in the BCNDP caucus that have at least convinced me that this thrownness issue is being taken very personally, and I feel like they're going to keep bringing it up. And if they do, I mean, that's a really heavy charge against the party and its leader, isn't it? Yeah, and there's a few different things here, right? Like, he seemingly disobeyed the leader. When Andrew Wilkinson said, you cannot 
uh, advertise anymore in the light magazine. And then Laurie Thronis told CTV that he planned on it. He's now mm-hmm. backed away from that. He is no longer advertising. That is basically the way that he kept himself in caucus. Mm-hmm. So that's a major issue. And then the other side of things is he has many values that are homophobic. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Wilkinson has said, there is no room for homophobes in my caucus. Yeah. And Laurie Thronis isn't changing. You know, he believes his values and that in many sense represents, and we're lucky, Mo, we live in a province of 87 ridings where the values and uh, the cultures vary for riding to riding. But what's not okay are those who will question the fundamental human rights of other British Columbians. Mm -hmm. And by saying that you support conversion therapy, which is something the federal government is actively working to ban, (laughs) then that's a problem. And Laurie Thronis running for the BC Liberals, staying in their caucus, will lead to the same types of electoral struggles Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives had in the last federal election. That Mm -hmm. voters will see them as social conservatives and paint the party with that brush universally. And even if members of the party and the leader try to distance themselves from social conservative values, by having people like Laurie Thronis, it will hurt the party in the minds uh, of many other people. So the Liberals will have to make that decision around whether Laurie will continue to be part of the party for him to continue to be that way. And again, you know, we're, we're lucky we live in a system that, you know, we have elections riding by riding and, and our communities can vote for our representatives. Mm-hmm. But the institution of political parties make decisions and they need to, they will then be judged based on those decisions. Yeah. Let's take a look at the BC NDP government now. Going back to 2017, in terms of their vision that they sold to British Columbia. We hear about the $10 a day daycare broken promise, the renter's rebate broken promise. But overall, have the BC NDP delivered on their campaign promises and their visions that they campaigned on in 2017? I think they delivered on those core messages. Uh, you know, the renter's rebate will continue to plague them. And Premier Horgan, you know, up until the last time he was asked, which I think was before the pandemic, he still planned on trying to bring in that rebate before the election. I think that's impossible now, especially <laughs> with the way that the, you know, the economy yeah. is going and what we've seen in terms of the shift in rent with the pandemic and all of that. So mm-hmm. I think we need to put that aside and Horgan will have to sell people that, yes, he has done enough to address the concerns of renters and no, it wasn't a rebate, which was always flawed public policy. I used to always joke (laughs) that the rebate would be the same as, you know, a single mom making $60,000 a year. I think there was an income threshold. So it's got to be a little bit higher. So $60,000 a year, she would get the same rebate as Tyler Myers from the Vancouver Canucks who may rent a Yale town apartment. So (laughs) it just didn't seem fair that, you know, no matter how much money you made, you got the same rebate. So that policy was flawed. Horgan will have to convince people that he's done enough for renters. Mm-hmm. Uh, $10 a day daycare is something that some British Columbians are getting to experience. Uh, there are pilot projects still running. I think there's going to be a commitment to continue to find affordable childcare. Again, especially now where, uh, you know, there's extra financial pressures on so many families, families mm-hmm. who have lost jobs, families who have seen a reduction in hours. Like there's going to be a need for programs like uh, government-supported child care. So mm-hmm. we can judge whether it's $10 or $15 or $20, but 
But the reality is Premier Horgan has made more investments in childcare than any other premier in the province's history. And he will sell that point as well. And then the overall issues, you know, is life more affordable in Metro Vancouver now than it was three years ago? You'd know better than me. I live in Victoria now. <laughs> Not really? I, no. <laughs> I seem to think that that's one of those things that he's going to continue to struggle with, right? Yeah. And but the question people will ask is there, is it really a solvable problem? You know, mm. is congestion better now than it was that the tolls are off the port man and that we mm. finally, finally are starting to see construction on a Broadway subway line to right. finally ease some of that pressure. So all of those are things that Premier Corgan delivered on. But I think this election will be so unique in a sense that, yes, his record matters. But more importantly, it will be what's coming next. Because of how much our world has changed due to COVID, it will really be about, do you trust this leader to guide us through what's going to be likely the most period of most fundamental change in the province's history as we try to recover from this pandemic? So let's talk about that. Because on this podcast, Andrew Wilkinson and then later Jazz Johal made the case that the BCNDP has done well on the public health side of the pandemic response. Since then, I think the BC Liberals have critiqued, of course, the back-to-school plan, which you mentioned, and the decision, if made, to go to an election during a pandemic. But the main pandemic-related critique that the BC Liberals had is that the BC NDP has not spent all the additional $5 billion in COVID-19 spending that was set aside, and that the NDP have no economic recovery or relief plan in response to the pandemic. Obviously, they are politicians and they're, <laughs> they're trying to convince others that the NDP have no plan. But I want to ask you, what's your take on the BC NDP's pandemic response so far? And I guess more importantly, what do you think voters feel and how do voters feel about that? So yeah, you, you look at the polls and voters are really, really highly supportive. But the question I keep asking is, are people supportive of John Horgan or are they supportive of Dr. Bonnie Henry or mm. are they supportive of the idea that we had low, low cases for a long time, which is now changing and will public perception change as cases continue to go up? So there's a lot of factors at play in terms of perception of how government is doing. I think uh, government has waited purposefully to provide the economic recovery plan uh, in order to better understand the impacts of the virus on everyday life. And mm -hmm. I, I know businesses are struggling and I know businesses in some cases are closing their doors forever, but good public health is, is more important than a strong economy in the minds of Adrian Dix and Dr. Mm -hmm. Henry and Premier Horgan. And so They've needed to try to take measures to address some of those concerns. And that means, you know, physical distancing in restaurants and those additional rules around Airbnbs and hotel rentals. And obviously, the closure at the border has had just such a massive impact on the tourism sector, mm -hmm. which matters so much to our economy. Like, just more than anywhere else in this country, tourism matters to British Columbia. And so, it's hard really to assess how Premier Horgan has done because what he basically did was he he turned over the reins to Dr. Henry and he mm. said, I will let her make the public health decisions and, and we will follow. And now is the time that he will be tested as the political decisions have to be made and what the economic recovery looks like and how does the NDP recover from a back to school plan. It's easy to criticize a school plan that nobody has ever seen. Once we get back <laughs> into the classroom, then the true judgment will be possible to feel whether students are safe, whether teachers are safe and whether enough was done 
to help curb the spread of the virus. So, you know, I'm not, I, I just don't know yet if he has had done, all the signs are that British Columbians are convinced that Premier Horgan has done a good job. And yes, he has guided us through this. And, and yes, you know, British Columbia is in a good position to bounce back because of strong economic fundamentals, mm-hmm. but so much can still unfold in terms of the pandemic and, and public health cases. And, but the communications for the large part have been, rel- have been pretty effective. Is Andrew Wilkinson right when he says that the BCNDP have no economic recovery or relief plan? Aside from a survey, because it sounds like you're also saying that they're kind of waiting that part out. Yeah, and so they have spent uh, large portions of the $5 billion already, and that has been part of the transition towards getting the economy back on track. And so there has been uh, some policies and some investments in order to get there. But in Mm -hmm. terms of a plan uh, that's concrete, outlining the next steps, that's coming. And, and that is coming uh, in the middle of September and will be outlined uh, by the Premier. Right, right in time for a election platform. So, so this is the thought, <laughs> and, and I've heard this a lot, Mo, is that the plan will be released, then the government will pull on the plan, and mm-hmm. then once that polling comes back, then the decision will be made. And they've actually mm-hmm. pushed back when they are introducing this plan uh, because of the start of school. And Mm. because the school plan has been rocky, they want to give the start of school, you know, it's space to breathe and the public to understand what's going on in schools. And it would be seen as disingenuous, I think, if they announced uh, the big recovery plan the same week as a return to school. So they've, they've pushed everything back a little bit to, and I think that was good. Whoever made that decision, that was a shrewd and smart decision to make. And so um, I don't think they are without plan and mm-hmm. a plan is coming. Uh, and I think Andrew Wilkinson, though Andrew Wilkinson is right though, to apply pressure to, to have some influence on what that plan looks like. Mm-hmm. Does Rob Fleming have the hardest job in the province right now <laughs> as BC's education minister? It's a, it's really a no-win job, right? And that's, <laughs> that's one of the biggest challenges for him is, you know, if kids go back and every single kid is healthy and every single kid graduates and every single kid has an opportunity to learn, mm-hmm. we would say, great, that's what we expected. <laughs> yeah. And if that doesn't happen, which is highly likely, then people will criticize. And that's what's so tough on Fleming. Yeah. And yes, there's been some communications missteps Uh, you know i think the province wishes they had made it clearer that what was presented on july 29th was not a final plan and that as we've seen has evolved since then i think they wish that that was a little bit clearer but the reality is the expectations around the school plan are so high because it's our kids yeah and and parents across the province are grappling with what to do and you know i we have, as a family, lived a very tight life during the pandemic, like so many have. And we've made lots of decisions and we've educated our kids around this. Mm-hmm. And we have been with our kids every step of the way, reminding them, put on your mask, physical distance. You know, you can't hug your friend. We're reminding them of all of that. Yeah. And now we're being told, send them back to class and just trust 
that somebody else will do that for you. A teacher oh, they'll has, be hugging all their friends. Uh, so, right? And there's teachers that have 21 other kids to watch and there's staff in the school ground. And so all of that is tough for parents yeah. to stomach. And I think that's what makes it a no-win. But he's, you know, the consultation that they have done with the BCTF, and yes, the teachers' union has still been frustrated with some regards to the plan, has been unprecedented in many ways. And for a long time, the BCTF hmm. felt government didn't listen to them. And they can't say that now because government has at least given them a seat at the table, given mm. parents a seat at the table, given administrators a seat at the table, given support staff. And, and with that, the plan has been rolled out. So, you know, it's hard to know what will happen in schools, but the work is being done. Premier Horgan said just recently that, you know, this is just a start. We just want yeah. to start September and we will make adjustments as we go along. What's the latest news on if you are a parent and decide to pull your kid from school, yeah. homeschool them, whatever, are you able to put them back into that same school after the pandemic is over? Because I know that was a big issue that kept coming up. Yeah, and it still is. And so homeschooling uh, is a very separate thing. And for a lot of parents, is not the right fit. What mm-hmm. I think most parents wanted is a remote option. Right. where okay. they remain connected to their school. And that was something that wasn't in the original plan. It was a big mistake. And it's now included as part of the plan. About, looks like 20% of parents or so across the province have requested a remote option. So hmm. those kids have been promised uh, that they will continue to have a space at their local school. And Minister Fleming keeps saying, do not pull your kids out of school. Do not un- de-roll them or unenroll them. Because if you do that, then they may lose a spot in, in a really busy catchment. So there are right. options for parents there to learn from home that weren't available early on that address some of that concerns. There are still lingering concerns like French immersion. There's no remote French mm. immersion options in, in most districts. And so those parents are struggling with what to do. Uh, but the advice has been stay connected to your school because in busy catchments, you know, parents don't want to lose that connection to their, to their neighborhood classroom. Right. So de-enrolling means homeschooling, whereas remote learning is you're still attached to that school. Yeah, exactly. And you don't lose your place there. Okay. Exactly. And some parents may have looked at independent schools. It may be a little bit too late for that now, but you mm-hmm. know, some parents that had the financial means may have looked at a situation where I could send my kid to a school that promises only six other kids in the classroom and has larger facilities. But in those cases as well, you would have had to have uh, de-enrolled at your school right. and then gone to the independent school. And I, and I think we didn't see a lot of that, yeah. uh, which I think is good for, you know, the continuity of the school system because schools get funding based on how many kids are enrolled there. And by mm-hmm. impacting those ratios could have had uh, unintended consequence moving forward for those community schools. Mm-hmm. Now, Richard, I'm not a journalist. I'm not an activist. Not a health expert, but I am happy to advocate for safe supply and resources in general being directed towards the opioids crisis. And I've talked about it in the media a few times because I think this is a really important issue. And as we've juxtaposed the numbers of opioids deaths this year versus COVID deaths, you know, there is a real second or first health crisis happening here. Yeah. Is this going to be a major issue in the next election? Because my fear is that the opioids crisis is going to be used as this like 
political talking point, and it's going to get people talking about homelessness encampments or how some people don't feel safe in their neighborhoods, mostly around the city of Vancouver. And we've seen increased media coverage of that. And I'm just worried that the talking points are going to be about these vague ideas like wraparound services or treatment beds and not about solutions that will urgently end the opioids-related deaths. Yeah, it's one of those things you and I spoke about earlier as well, right? Like, we're not, as a general citizen, policy experts. And so Mm -hmm. voters have a really hard time understanding what is the right solution. And this Mm -hmm. is one of those issues where our minds need to be in it just like Mm -hmm. our hearts, right? I think so many people are heartbroken over these deaths, but there's a lot of people as well who still have this massive misperception that these are junkies, that these are people on the downtown east side, that they make the decision to Mm -hmm. get addicted to drugs and therefore, you know, they deserve what they get when they use these drugs. Like it's such a massive misperception. And so it's easy to be ignorant and just say, if you've never had to deal with anything like that, it's easy just to say, Oh, just throw them in treatment, (laughs) you know, as if if it's that easy. And the treatment beds that don't exist. You know, I remember covering um, Supervisor Insight on the downtown east side as a young reporter. And they asked me to go in and get some B-roll. And and there was a drug user there who agreed to be filmed on camera. And I will never forget the image of the needle going into his arm Mm -hmm. and not catching because the needle had gone into that arm so many times. And for him trying to find another part of his vein to inject the needle and trying again and again. Hmm. And it's this, it was a deep moment for me to understand uh, these are human beings and this is a deep crisis. And so I hope that we can have a conversation, but I don't think it will dominate the political agenda. Yes, every party will have parts of their platform directed towards the opioid crisis and homelessness, but I don't think the election campaign really is the right place to make these big decisions. We need this action now and we need to follow the advice of experts uh, like the coroner and the provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, like they have provided substantial advice for politicians to follow. And yes, many of these issues are multi-jurisdictional, which are hard federal government, provincial government, municipalities, when we're talking about, especially Surrey and Vancouver. So it's hard to address these concerns, but you know, you can't look at this, um, crisis and not think of, you know, that is having a profound impact. Even just the story recently of Jason Botchford's death connected Mm -hmm. to fentanyl. And this is a guy that so many people love as a journalist, a sports reporter, and is the total opposite of the perception that many people have of those who die of overdoses. So Mm -hmm. that may lead to people better understanding the profound and deep impact that this crisis has had on on so many people. Is there a double standard or perhaps even a hypocrisy in terms of political framing or even media narratives with how COVID-19 is covered as a health crisis and how the opioids crisis is covered as a health crisis? I think it's really hard to compare the two. I think, you know, the opioid crisis uh, has lasted longer uh, and impacts, yes, many British Columbians, but very specifically drug users. And, and mm-hmm. COVID-19 has had such a huge impact on what we've seen for overdoses, right? More yeah. people are spending time alone at home. We know that that leads to higher rates of death. 
because people aren't getting the naloxone or the help that they need if they're using at home. We also know it's leading to a more toxic drug supply because Mm -hmm. of the closures around the border. The issue with COVID-19 is it's a true public health crisis in terms of the fact that uh, anyone can get sick, that you can interact with someone in a close space Mm. and exchange fluids and and you can get COVID-19. No one is immune. And yes, no one is immune from... Uh, the, the drug overdose crisis, but and I know Premier Horgan got himself in trouble by choosing the wrong words around choice when it came to comparing the two crises. Mm-hmm. But they are different in a regards that COVID-19 uh, and the spread of it is very much how it happens is unknown, uh, but we, we do understand sort of very simple measures around public health, whereas the opioid crisis is that the decisions seem to be more complicated. Mm-hmm. And, and more and and there's less buy-in because of the the number of people that it can potentially uh, directly impact. I guess my worry is, and I've already started to see it, and I've critiqued it a little bit on the radio on Twitter. I just don't like when the opioids crisis is effectively politicized as a way to bash another party. Oh, it's terrible. I wonder if we're going to see more of that. We've started to see it from one side. Are we going to continue to see? that type of rhetoric going yeah. into an election. And, and I, I hope not. You know, I hope that there's no blame placed on government for an increase in cases. I think the reason why we've seen more overdose deaths is very clear. And yes, there are ways to criticize what the government has done. Should they mm-hmm. open more treatment beds? Yes, they should. Should they figure out more wraparound services for people that are living in poverty that may be addicted to drugs, may have, in many cases, mental health issues. Yes, mm-hmm. all of those things are things we should do. But should you blame another political party for people dying of overdoses? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I hope that's not where the discussion goes, because I believe that we can have discussions about policy and implementing that policy uh, that is... Um, helpful and constructive and and can lead to good positive change. Yeah. Moving on to another topic. Is the Cullen Commission basically a (laughs) non-factor politically now? You don't hear about it anymore. When Christy Clark was on the show, she said that she didn't get called to testify. Is this even in the public consciousness? And I think hopefully – it will be again, and, and for those who haven't been following along closely, that's the inquiry into money laundering in the province, which was a massive issue and one that my colleagues Sam Cooper and John Waugh did a lot of amazing work on and, and helped, I think, push the government towards a public inquiry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people still should care. And I know you've had Brad West on, who cares immensely about this, and, and I know this is a topic you're interested in as well. Mm-hmm. I think eventually we will care again about getting answers. It, the, the, the money laundering had such a profound impact on our province in terms mm-hmm. of housing prices, uh, in terms of you know political influence, political decision-making, all of this. So I, I hope we get solutions. Right now, obviously, is not the right time. And you know, I've never thought that Christy Clark will be asked to testify, but I do believe there is still a chance for her to be asked. Uh, Rich Coleman... Uh, will likely be called to testify. I think Mm -hmm. that will get eyeballs when that happens. But a lot of what's happening now in 
in the inquiry is um, you know sort of building background cases, and the testimony has not been of huge public importance yet. So right. you know, there's a lot of other things. Still possible, people. is what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's still possible. <laughs> I think it's still, and I think the outcome, I think the process itself may not matter much, but what comes out of the inquiry will matter immensely. I just wonder if it's going to be a big deal. Like, I wonder, (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid that it will be like the public inquiry into gas prices, where we found out that we were probably being overcharged 13 cents per liter at the pump. But then we just like forgot about it the next week. Right. (laughs) You know, that's my worry. Because it is hard to actually put in, and, and those the critics of public inquiry said all that before we got into the public inquiry. Yeah, that it is hard. They are they are fault finding, but then it's hard to create changes. And so I'm sure there will be a lot of recommendations that come out of this. But a lot of those recommendations probably have already been put in place by casinos, right? Mm-hmm. Limits that are now in place in terms of cash transactions. Uh, and and monitoring, and again, the federal government dropped the ball in many regards around policing these issues. So mm-hmm. I think those measures are slowly getting put into place, uh, but it is not as significant or as front of mind as it once was. And I do hope, like you do, that it does lead to at least some positive. If they find fault, or if they find things that were done wrong, then we should fix those things. Mm-hmm. And we should commit to doing so because it has an impact on uh, people's everyday lives. Yeah. You brought him up. I haven't brought him up yet, but it sounds like you listened to the podcast last week with Andrew Weaver. I did. You heard Andrew Weaver say that he would like John Horgan to still be premier. (laughs) That's weird, right? Like no one, like I know that no one is expecting the Greens to form government, but that's still a weird thing for him to say. Andrew Weaver is a great man. And a weird man. <laughs> and he, he has said, and I hope he doesn't take any offense to that because I know he listens to the podcast as well, uh, that he is very different than any politician uh, I have ever covered. And just like listen to some of the things that he said to you. You know, he goes down the track of saying there's a bunch of politicians that should no longer be politicians and there should be term limits, but then he wouldn't say who he's talking about. He just wants you to imagine who he's talking about. You know, he does things that that make me laugh sometimes. Uh, the the, The realistic part of this is the Green Party is not in the position at this point uh, to form the next government of British Columbia. But yeah. like we've seen over the last few years, they can be a partner in a confidence and supply agreement that that helps at least have a little bit of influence on government decision-making. And so, you know, Andrew Weaver is, has, a, you know, he has a, a really um, fractious relationship with Adam Olson and Sonia Firstenau, his former colleagues. And yeah. he does not want Sonia Firstenau to be the leader of the party. And that is leading to a lot of tensions for a party that is really just trying to get its um, grips on being mainstream. When it seems so evident that that's the case, why do you think he just didn't say it out loud on the podcast? Because I gave him many opportunities to do so. Right. And he was even saying, oh, you know, if Sonia wants to come to me for technical advice or because he is a climate scientist, yeah. you know, I'd be happy to provide that. Like he was trying to make it sound like everything was A-OK. But it's not. And, and he, you know, he was asked that same similar question 
by my colleague Rob Shaw. And what he told Rob is, Sonia could come ask for advice, but she would never ask for advice, taking a <laughs> shot at Sonia. And, you know, people have disagreements, right? Yeah. And, you know, this is a new party that's just feeling its way out and they have different thoughts on the way politics should work. And, you know, part of these legacy parties like the NDP and the Liberals are so strictly uh, defined by by sort of these similar values, right? And mm-hmm. yes, you often see fights within caucus, but in a larger caucus, it's either easier to cover that up and the prize is always being the premier. So those caucuses say, okay, we need to keep our fights out of the media because we don't want our party to look bad because if we do it right, we can govern. Whereas the Greens mm-hmm. don't have that same end game, right? They are trying to govern in the moment that right now is the most important moment. And so that leads to some tensions and Weaver is a character and, and Sonia and Adam are just feeling their way through, you know, being MLAs, although both of them did have experience uh, in public life before becoming mm-hmm. MLAs, which I think Weaver really, really um, under, uh, overshadows. Like he doesn't, he doesn't yeah. give them enough credit for their experience before they uh, were elected as MLAs. And so it's, it's not help. It's not helpful for the party as it tries to grow um, its brand and, and introduce people to their to the whoever their leader is going to be uh, when they decide in a few weeks' time. That ideological rift between Weaver and First to Know and Olson is very apparent, and it's yeah. very wide in terms of how they see the world and how they see the Green Party. Is that a rift that exists? within the BC Greens in terms of the BC Green voters who do make up a, a fair amount of the population, at least looking at 2017, because that was one of my key things with Mr. Weaver, and, and I didn't really feel like I got a good answer from him. It was this idea of who are the BC Greens? Like, what are the, what are their political values? I, I don't feel like they've been well expressed. So that divide, is that sort of what's happening within the party itself? Yeah, I think it's a great observation. And I'm not sure... Greens, no, right? They care about the environment. We know that. They care about a lot of other things. They care about innovation, about new technologies around, you know, and and Sonia first now floated the idea of the four-day work week, Mm -hmm. uh, which is popular in some areas of Europe. And But the Greens are really trying to define themselves. They don't exist really anywhere on the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some that would be considered ideologically right-wing, like Andrew Weaver, some that would be considered ideologically left-wing, like Sonia Burstyn now, and that is hard for the public to understand, like we were talking about before. Like, people have sort of gut feelings about what they feel about parties and about politicians, and so mm-hmm. they, they still struggle. So the important thing the Greens need to do is they need to explain to British Columbians who are they and, and yeah. what do they stand for so voters can get that. And yes, I think they can have an impact by just having a few members, but their goal, no doubt, is to continue to grow that base. Do you think they're going to have an impact in this upcoming election, whether it's the fall or the spring? Yeah, you know, it's always hard uh, being a junior partner uh, in a confidence and supply agreement or uh, in a coalition government. And what some people in the public will think is that, you know, why vote for the Greens when I can vote for the NDP? They are just so similar and they'll just work together anyway, so I'll vote NDP. So the Greens need to deal with that issue and they need to try to differentiate themselves 
from the NDP when it comes to policies, and that's going to be hard. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the Greens continue to hope that they can grow, but with a new leader and trying to introduce that leader very quickly, it's, it's going to be challenging for them to keep up the momentum they have gained over the last few election cycles. So, Richard, summarize it for me. What are the top three election issues for voters, whether we go in the fall or go in the spring, which seems like the most likely outcome that we we are going to have an early election? COVID-19, COVID-19, and (laughs) COVID-19. So I think first is obviously... But COVID-19 sort of acts as like a frame for everything. Right, for everything. So um, affordability will continue... uh, No, number one is going to be trust in governance. So can I trust the leader to guide us through an unprecedented time of pandemic? And do I trust that the leader will be the one that can make sound decisions uh, to help the province recover? And then more specifically, affordability will continue to be crucial. And again, affordability is an omnibus issue around from childcare to how much I pay for my car insurance to how much Mm -hmm. I pay for my home. But those sort of issues of, affordability will continue to be front and center. And then, you know, I think the economy continues to to be important as well. You know, managing Mm -hmm. uh, the deficits and showing a clear economic plan for recovery. Those will be the things that people are focused on. But I think more than ever before, the election will be about what can specific policies do for me as I've seen my life uprooted uh, by an un- unprecedented global pandemic? So as the parties start to set the board in preparation for an election, whose messaging is most effective right now? I mean, obviously we do have the polls, but just from you as an observer, what are you liking in terms of, oh, you know, that's a really strong message or uh, this message is muddled, it doesn't make sense to me? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's so funny. I was thinking about that recently because I don't really even know what the messages are at this point. Like when we were at the NDP convention and I'm, you know, we were at the NDP convention and Premier John Horgan was trying out lines. And I remember thinking when I was there, these are really good lines. And Mm -hmm. now I'm sitting here talking to you and I can't remember what he said at all because so much has happened since then. And so I don't know what the messages from the liberals will be to attack John Horgan I know the NDP will attack Andrew Wilkinson for being a lawyer and a doctor and his missteps on wacky renters and that that Andrew Wilkinson is completely and totally out of touch with everyday British Columbians and he'll go back to his, you know, as they describe, whatever they'll describe it as mansion in Quilchena. Mm. And this is a guy who, you know, lives a better life than you do and doesn't care about you like that, I think, will be the attacks from the NDP towards the Liberals. The Liberals will try to attack Premier Horgan. They'll go back to the Angry John stuff, which uh, Christy Clark had some, you know, mixed success at attacking Premier Horgan about. You think they're going to go back to that? Because he hasn't yeah, really been angry lately. So I think they will try to paint that picture that this is a guy who is huff and puff, and you know. But I think he's proven now with what will be three plus years of governing that he is in control of his emotions and decision-making and is a compassionate human being. And so Mm -hmm. the liberals are going to have to work on something that, you know, they'll have to pick holes in some of the potentially other caucus members and try to find something that, that helps, helps them, uh, you know, convince voters that they are better than the NDP. 
You think that they might go at other caucus members, cabinet ministers? Yeah, I think David Eby is one of them. I think that's their favorite. And that Selena, is their uh, favorite. Selena Robinson. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think you know these are now people that have reputations of their own, yeah. and uh, will be people that they target. But the reality is Andrew Wilkinson is running against John Horgan. And Mm -hmm. that's where his uh, focus should be. If he diverts from that, it shows he's in real trouble because he wants British Columbians to compare the two of them rather Mm -hmm. than, you know, people that are in uh, Horgan's uh, caucus or cabinet. Are we going to be told time and time again that this is the most important or pivotal <laughs> election in BC's yes. history. <laughs> yes, and I think it is that your be messaging, true. Richard? Do you I, have I your messaging it, ready? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it may be true. I, it's so funny when I was thinking about that a few days ago that <laughs> that, it, that it may actually be true. And but every election is pivotal, and every election is important, and it does mark a shift. But the reality is, our provinces go on no matter who we have at the helm, and some years are good, and some years are bad. Uh, but it will be a crucial time in terms of how decisions are made. But the reality is both parties are going to spend a lot of money. Both parties are going to invest money in similar areas. Yes, the focus is maybe slightly different, but the reality is both parties will have relatively similar plans on how to get us out of this. Mm-hmm. The question is, who would you rather implement that plan, John Horgan or Andrew Wilkinson? And I think that's why I said when you talked about the top three that that's leadership for the first time in a long time. You know, leadership mm-hmm. mattered last time too. Everybody had an opinion on Christy Clark. But I think this is going to be about sort of picking who you hope can govern us through these tough times. Yeah. I'm rewinding and thinking about the conversations that I've had with people about, oh, you know, there might be an early election and some of my friends that are more politically in tune. And I think you're absolutely right. It comes <laughs> it comes down to likability and trust of that leader and almost how you feel about him, right? Yeah. Whether that's John Horgan or Andrew Wilkinson. Richard, this was really fun, man. It was fun. And, and, I, and I really appreciate it. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the pandemic is, you know, we've been distant from so many people. And, and through that, uh, there's a lot of people that I, like, have grown to admire more and more. And, and you're one of them, and I've told you that before. And there's a lot of others that are like, I can't wait till the pandemic is over so I can, like, meet these people face-to-face. <laughs> so I look forward to our meeting face-to-face. There's others, uh, Thomas Drance from The Athletic, a Vancouver Canucks reporter. Like, he's right, a guy, yeah. I follow him on Twitter. And he's like, I can't wait to meet that guy in person because we've been interacting by Zoom and by phone and by Twitter. And so like, that's the thing I think when I think about what I'm most excited for when this pandemic is over mm-hmm. is like meeting those people face to face that I've grown to admire so much through the pandemic. So I look forward to when you and I get to see each other face to face and this whole thing is over and we get back to sort of some semblance of normalcy. Me too. And I, and I appreciate those kind words. And I will echo that. It's been really weird. I've made new friends this year and a couple of them I've never even met. <laughs> like right. it's just through, you know, these online communities that I'm now a part of through the podcast. I just end up talking to these people over and over again and almost on a daily basis. And <laughs> never met them. So. Yeah, it's a weird it's a weird thing, isn't it? It's it's just a yeah. weird way to change the way in which we interact and grow friendships and I think it's going to be neat to connect with those people 
uh, no matter who they are. And I know, you know, everybody has that in their lives now that when we get out of this, we can have that traditional, but also feel that there's already a foundation there for a friendship and a relationship, which is, which is really cool too. Mm-hmm. Richard, where do people follow you? Where should they go? Watch global television uh, all the time, morning, noon, night. Uh, I am on the Global BC website, and obviously I am on Twitter, uh, at Richard Zussman. Uh, those are the best places to find me. Again, if you ever want to reach out to anyone, my email is easy to find, richard.zussman, Z-U-S-S-M-A-N, at globalnews.ca. Mm-hmm. I always love hearing from British Columbians, story ideas, your thoughts on how the politicians are doing. And, and we're doing... You know, we, we want to bring more ways to interact with people. We'll have some things on our Global BC website and through the Global BC Facebook page where the public can ask questions of their elected officials because I believe that's hugely important. And mm-hmm. I, I have access to these people on a regular basis and I want to bring that access to others. And so, you know, we're doing more of that and just people follow along with our website and our Facebook page and they can find out when we're doing those things so they too can, can ask their elected officials questions that are on their mind. Love it. Richard, this was so much fun. Yeah, it was. Whenever the election happens, whenever it's over, I'd love to have you back and we can do a a post-election analysis. Sure, that'd be great. (laughs) Love it, Mo. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And and before you go, I I just want to stress this. You know, I am fascinated by elections and whether we have one in the fall, whether we don't. It's something that I always find fascinating and it's people like you that make it really fascinating. So <laughs> I think you're the best at what you do. Oh, thanks, so. I'm so looking forward to your election coverage, uh, so especially after your insights today. So thank you so much. I, I love elections too. And <laughs> there are others out there, like some former podcast guests of yours that also really cover elections really, really well. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I love it so much and I can't wait. It's just, that is our chance to help shape our democracy. And I can't wait to give people information so they can make their decision on who to vote for whenever that election may be. Love it. Thank you so much, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Bill. People, he is the president of the BC Legislative Press Gallery and the BC Legislative Journalist for Global BC. He is Richard Zussman. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.